Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. When it comes to addressing addiction in Australia, issues of underfunding, under-resourcing and continued stigma prevents us from progressing further. To move forward, we must consider a system reboot. This week, we welcome Dr Nicole Lee, Adjunct Professor at the National Drug Research Institute and Director at 360 Edge, a consultancy specialising in the alcohol and other drug sector. With 30 years' experience in policy and practice implementation, Nicole's vast sector knowledge has made her an invaluable asset as a member of the Australian National Council on Alcohol and Other Drugs, Australia's key expert advisory council to the Australian Government on Drugs. Nicole has a unique combination of experience and skills in clinical practice and management, research, teaching and policy development. Tune in as Nicole delves into the many facets of addiction and how changes to the system can completely transform the way we approach prevention, treatment and recovery. Dr Nicole Lee, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, That's okay. It's a pleasure to be able to find some time to talk to you during your lockdown in Melbourne, but let's share your journey with our listener base. I have a kind of interesting kind of journey into the alcohol and drug space. I actually started university doing computer science and hated it. And the only way I could avoid repeating the whole of first year at uni was to do psychology. So, wow. so I switched to psychology and then part of the way through that course, we had a, a lecture on what is known as exposure therapy for anxiety and they were just starting to apply this to other areas like alcohol and drugs um, particularly in it so it was a very intellectual interest I had in alcohol and drugs first it wasn't about drug issues it was more about the kind of treatment side of it and then as I, as I went along I got more and more interested and I found out more and more about the sector and what I realized was how much stigma and how much disadvantage and was surrounded the sector and it really triggered off my social justice kind of bent. And so I started to get more and more involved in it. But initially, like I I had never used an illicit drug and I didn't drink very much and I didn't even know anybody that used illicit drugs. So I kind of came into it from this kind of more intellectual space and then then my heartstrings got pulled and with, with the social justice aspect of it. Isn't that interesting? So it was the fact that you didn't want to waste a year at uni to do the degree and then all of a sudden you fell in love with it and and you you found that passion. Yeah, it's really, really amazing because I really did have, it didn't really kind of, wasn't in my space at all up until then. 
Whereabouts did you study down in Melbourne? I studied at New South Wales Uni, did my undergrad there, and then did my honours year in Queensland. I moved to Queensland after that and did my PhD in Queensland as well. And then after that, I moved to Melbourne for a job. Yeah, so what was your first job experience in mental health space following your studies? The first job I had was actually, I started my PhD in Townsville and I worked at the acute psychiatric unit, which is where my interest in comorbidity kind of started because I had this research interest in alcohol and drugs. And then I started working in this acute psychiatric unit. It was brand new at the time, state of the art and the alcohol and drug and the mental health kind of sides collided. And at the time it was it was a long time ago and there was a period where people in mental health just had really no interest at all in dealing with alcohol and drug issues and it was thought of as an impediment to actually applying mental health treatments. So when they found out I had an interest in alcohol and drugs, they kind of went, here, you deal with this. But I actually, at the time, I had no clinical experience at all because it was my first job. So I had to learn very quickly about that level of complexity and how to treat people who had both alcohol and drug and mental health problems. Yeah. Wow. So you were thrown in the deep end then as far as Yeah, but it was an, an excellent learning experience So for me and I had some really good supervision and really good guidance at the time. I worked in an alcohol and drug service. I worked at a long-term psychiatric rehab for a while. I worked in academia. I worked in training in Queensland Health. So I spent 10 years altogether in Queensland and then I was offered just a one-year contract at Turning Point in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. So I took a year off Queensland Health and I did a temporary move to Melbourne, but I've been here for 20 years now, so I just ended up staying. Yeah, you're a local now. (laughs) So, So tell us, what were the challenges that you were finding when you were spending some time in this space with, you mentioned one before, which was clearly that mental health, traditional mental health approaches were sort of, it was just too hard to understand it, to try and find different avenues to help people that were suffering from this disease of addiction. What were some other things that you were noticing were challenging? Well, I I mean, I think there was from both sides, a lack of understanding of the underlying drivers of Mm. both problems. We had people in both sectors who were not experienced with the other sector and but particularly I think from alcohol and drug from the alcohol and drug side there's a lot of stigma surrounding alcohol and drug use particularly illicit drug use it's still currently a criminal offense and so it comes with all of that stigma as well as the mental health type of stigma and that was evident in people in the health field outside the alcohol and drug sector as well so there was a lot of kind of working through attitudes of even health professionals, let alone the general population in providing treatment for people with multiple morbidities. Yeah. And are there any statistics out there at the moment that tell us what those comorbidities are between mental ill health and addiction? We certainly know from people who are in alcohol and drug treatment, there's up to 80% of them will have some kind of mental health a significant mental health issue. And from 
the mental health side, it's a little bit lower. It's around 60% of people who are in treatment for a mental health issue also have some kind of alcohol and drug problem, but it may not be severe dependence. But we know that using alcohol and drugs with a mental health problem increases the symptoms of both problems. So even though someone in with a mental health issue might be using drugs at a level or drinking at a level which we might consider relatively low for the general population, it has a much bigger impact in someone who already has some other problems. Yeah. And so how did you arrive to that position in that, that company, the organisation right now? Yeah, so I guess I was working at Turning Point. I felt like I've, I'd probably done as much as I could there in terms of the things I wanted to do and my career and that kind of thing. And I saw a real gap in the, the kind of translation from research to practice. We'd been struggling with that for a very long time. And we didn't really have a good solution to it because clinicians are trained in a particular way. They're not used, they're not really trained to read journal articles or understand the literature. They don't have time to trawl through the literature. And academics are are also trained in a particular way. And we don't want to change that because they're specialists in their area. But there was no bridge between them. And so I saw so many times clinicians would be invited to these research symposium and they would all come away saying, did not understand any of that. That wasn't relevant to me. And so I saw a place for a bit of a bridge between the two. And so that's how 360 Edge started. We focus in the alcohol and drug sector and dealing with alcohol and drug issues in other related sectors. But really the focus is service improvement and workforce improvement through that bridge between research and practice. Yeah. Yeah, the application of the research and what we do with that, is that that's pretty much the, the key part that was missing? Yeah, uh, that's a gap we definitely saw and that's the kind of space we fill yeah. now. It's understanding all of our consultants we call pracademics so they've all got a clinical background and some research background as well and so they can step between the two sectors and translate all of that complex research talk into what it actually means on the ground in the front line and so you're engaged and you actually did some work for them last year the national mental health commission around this tell us what were you tasked with doing and then we can follow up on on how you went with that So the National Mental Health Commission were developing a blueprint for mental health and suicide prevention called Vision 2030. And all the way through their consultations, they had heard that alcohol and drug use was not being addressed. So they approached us and asked us to investigate this issue and write a report on the place of alcohol and drugs in the mental health system. And so normally the usual response in the past has been, let's integrate the two services. So we looked very carefully at that at multiple levels. We did a lot of literature, grey literature and published um, peer-reviewed published literature reviews. We talked to 21 experts 
in Australia in a range of areas. So alcohol and drugs and mental health, obviously, but also primary care, Aboriginal health. And those people stand from clinical experts, academics, and people with lived experience as well. In doing this process, what were the key things that you found? One of the things is, I mean, I guess that that everybody agreed that comorbidity is a, a difficult puzzle to solve. There's no question that it's an important thing we need to address, but we have been trying to do that for three decades or more. So my first encounter was in 1992 when I was at the acute psychiatric unit. So that was like nearly 30 years ago. And that is by no means the first time that was mentioned. We also know that it's a problem that's well studied. There's so much literature around on it and we know what the problems are. We've just never been able to reach a sustainable solution at a systematic level. And so that's what we were trying to trying to look at. So we framed up the report looking at systems integration, service integration and treatment integration and looking at where the evidence said that integration at each of these levels was a helpful way to approach the problem of comorbidity. I mean, did you start from what was existing and do almost like a SWOT analysis on what was going on with the existing systems and what's going with the integration and how it was working? Or did you just start from scratch and just say, hey, if we had to design this thing from scratch, what would this look like in the ideal world? Yeah, we kind of did a, a bit of both of those things. We started by asking our key informants what the problems were, what the really detailed problems were, not just comorbidity as a problem, but what it, what was it about it that they thought was holding us back? And then we asked them for potential solutions. And then we coupled that with the treatment and policy literature to see whether any of those solutions had been tried before and whether they'd worked or not. And so we came up with, in the end, really a a detailed set of reasons why integration at all of those levels has failed so far. Let's go through the key challenges that you found and then we can sort of work out from there. Yeah, okay. I think the the first problem and then the first reason why we've never been able to, to solve this problem by integration is that we have been thinking about alcohol and drug use as a mental health issue. And at some level it is, but it's not only a mental health issue. So we know that people who use alcohol and drugs, the vast majority of them use without any problems at all. And so if we're trying to combine these two sectors, alcohol and drugs is much, much broader. So it sits from prevention to harm reduction to tertiary interventions, whereas the mental health sector tends to be focused on the specialist treatment clinical end or the long-term kind of rehab type of end. And harm reduction and prevention tend to be done by health promotion organisations. So when you think about alcohol and drug use, it overlaps with mental health as a mental health issue, but really only at the very pointy end. So when we try and push these two sectors together, we lose a lot of the nuance that alcohol and drug treatment sector have. And so it never really works. They kind of don't fit together because alcohol and drugs is much broader than just a mental health issue. I mean, this has been around for some time. The challenge of that has been around for some time. What's currently in place does not seem to be working. So where do we need to go with this? 
So, I mean, I think there's a couple of other other issues that might answer that question. The other problem that we found when we were investigating this was the the service systems are also quite different. So it's not just the people who use drugs are quite different and, and drug and alcohol is much broader than a mental health issue, but the service systems are different. So the focus is much broader in alcohol drugs to mental health, but also the clients are actually not that overlapping when we looked at it. So the people who have what we might term comorbidity or multiple morbidities in mental health, they tend to be people with low prevalence mental health disorders and a range of severity of alcohol and drug problems. So people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, acute suicidality with some alcohol and drug issues on top. But the alcohol and, in the alcohol and drug sector, the mental health issues we would see they're much more the high prevalence disorders. So anxiety, depression, eating yeah. disorders, personality disorders. So the client groups actually don't overlap very much at all. And the workforces are really different and the models of care are really different. So when we try and push the two services together or the two sectors together, it's kind of like trying to merge two really different businesses into one. And we know from the business literature that 70 to 90% of mergers fail. And it's usually to do with the workforce and the philosophies of care and those kinds of things. Where should things go? Where, where do we need to steer the direction? So I think really, we need to really stop thinking about integration. We need to stop trying to merge the two sectors. One of the, quite a few of the key informants or the key experts also pointed out that people in both sectors have a multitude of other problems. So they housing and yeah. legal problems and financial problems and physical health problems. And we can't integrate all of those services together. So why are we just thinking about mental health and alcohol and drugs? And a, a better solution is to just flip that slightly and think more about holistic care. Mm. So rather than integrating systems and treatments, think about I've got this person in front of me. I know I can deal with their alcohol and drug problem or if I'm a mental health person, I know I can deal with their mental health problem. But what else do they need? What can I provide for them? And who else do I need to get involved rather than just trying to randomly mush kind of services together? So the conclusions that we came to were actually rather than integrating, integrating kind of decreases specialization because you're mushing two things together and there's a, it always falls to the lowest common denominator. We should actually um, in some ways separate them out more and increase the specialization of both sectors. So alcohol and drug people do good alcohol and drug work and mental health do good mental health work. But at the same time, we need to improve that internal capability to make a good assessment, do what you can and know where to either refer or know how to get someone in to help with the problem. And what we found from the literature was that the, this idea of integration hasn't really been studied very well in alcohol and drugs and mental health. So there's not many, not much outcome research to do with it. So we don't know, we only anecdotally know that it doesn't work. But when they've looked at it in hospitals, for example, it actually doesn't increase, improve patient care at all, and it costs more money. So they're kind of the opposite of what we hope would happen with integration. And there does seem to be another option, which is more collaboration between services rather than integration. 
And one of the things that we know increases collaboration is co-location of services or services having lots of contact with each other. And there has been some research that suggests that if you co-locate services together or you provide pathways between services so that they can formally collaborate and formally be in touch with each other, then that increases communication, it increases care coordination, and then you end up with much better outcomes for clients. The big problem that we've got at the moment is that mental health is underfunded and alcohol and drugs is even more underfunded. So alcohol and drugs is only funded about a tenth of mental health at the moment. And we we all know that mental health is underfunded as well. So there's no space or time for people to be able to put these kind of communication and collaboration systems in place. So it's easy to say we need more funding, but we need more funding. Have you seen more funding come into it or are you seeing that gradually happen, even though it's not everything we would need to make this better? I think actually we've seen a reduction in funding in real terms and that is a is a huge problem given that we need more funding. There was a study a few years ago in the alcohol and drug sector that says that we only have about half the funding that we need to service all of the people that just need treatment, not even the people, just the people that want treatment, let alone the people that need treatment. So it's, it's severely underfunded and it means that we've got, we can't recruit, you know, it's hard to recruit people, hard to keep people in the sector. Um, people move on to other better funded sectors to do the work that they yeah. they want to do. So the emerging workforce is really, we're behind a fair way in that. The other thing is that, the other thing that's happened is that we've, we have had periods of time including currently where many of the alcohol and drug services have been mushed together with the mental health services. And when that happens, it usually means that alcohol and drugs is subsumed under mental health. It's not a merger, it's more of a takeover. So we have data that shows that alcohol and drugs is disadvantaged by that. They lose positions. People move from the alcohol and drug sector into mental health because it's better funded and it's better. It's often better paid. So there's a whole load of problems yeah. associated with that too. Yeah, the interesting thing I find was where you said that they they weren't really mutually exclusive, but they're also not integrated. So we're really going for that collaborative approach where we open the channels of communication to get them to work together in order to create better client outcomes. Yeah, and I, and I think we see examples of that in the physical health space and there's no reason we can't emulate that in the mental health and alcohol and drug space. And in fact, the National Mental Health Commission's focus and uh, recommendations are pretty in line with this report in, with the mental health sector as well. So they are looking at a more holistic approach to mental health. And this fits really nicely with that that push in mental health as well. Is there a fair bit of research out there at the moment that's telling us how effective we're going with this and that's an indicator on? So that's one of the big problems. These kind of policy changes don't get evaluated very often. And the other problem is that we don't have very good outcome measures, very consistent outcome measures in either sector to tell us whether 
the, these moves have good outcomes for clients or not. So that's another thing that needs to happen. We need to think about the capability of the different sectors and put some really meaningful outcome measures in place so we can see whether whether these changes work or they don't work. The issue, I guess, is that where people have done research in this area, integration hasn't, it doesn't, there's no evidence really that integration actually results in better client outcomes. So we really need to measure this very carefully if, if that's the way that it's going to go. Yeah. I mean, I get that some things are hard to measure in mental health, but you sort of, it would be good to have some sort of yardstick that we can say, oh, this is working really well and we're making progress. But without that, we're walking in the dark. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think sometimes it's difficult to measure the really detailed nuance of things that are going on in mental health or colon drugs. We can still measure some things that we expect to change. And even though those measures might not be absolutely perfect, they do give us a good indication and it's better than not having any indication at all. Yeah. 360 Edge, what's the role that that the organisation plays? Tell us a bit more about that and what, what 360 Edge is up to. We are, I guess, following up from this report, presenting the results around at different places. I've actually got three presentations this week on this topic. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and I think it's really important to kind of get the information out there and get people thinking about this in a, a slightly different way. And we are also working with the Matilda Centre. We've developed up some training around the National Comorbidity Guidelines for the alcohol and drug sector. So we're providing that training. We're also doing some translational work and some service improvement work for a range of services and governments around Australia around the comorbidity issue. So it's really exciting that kind of got something slightly new in the sector, a new way of thinking about things and Hopefully we can start to implement some of the recommendations, even at a a local level and measure some outcomes and expect the outcomes to be better than what we've been, what we've seen so far. So the Productivity Commission just recently put out a statement about um, mental health and alcohol and drug services, the Victorian Mental Health Commission and uh, a range of other inquiries and uh, investigations. And they've all recommended integration I think without thinking very deeply about the real challenges and why why we haven't been able to do this for 30 years. So I think I'm really excited about this report, being able to help people reflect a little bit on a different way of thinking about comorbidity and mental health and alcohol and drug issues. Yeah, and hopefully they, they get the, uh, the funding and the resources to actually look at this separately, but also, you know, communication open to to link the two together so that we can be more effective and be more successful in creating better client outcomes. Yeah, and I think there's a real opportunity at the moment with all these inquiries going on and the National Mental Health Commission Vision 2030 process to really make a change and to really improve client outcomes and also really improve the the process for practitioners and services as well because it's quite frustrating to be going around in circles with this stuff yeah that's a good point tell me why they call you the ice queen so my interest in comorbidity also led me to an interest in methamphetamine 
and so, you know, colloquially called ICE. Yes. And so I've done a lot of research in that area. That's probably one of my main areas. They're obviously linked because people who use meth have a much higher rate of mental health problems than other people, people who use other drugs and the general population. So the the comorbidity area and the methamphetamine treatment area kind of have gone together. So, yeah, I guess that nickname came about also because some people think it's ironic because I'm really sweet and nice, (laughs) (laughs) not not at all an ice queen. (laughs) No, no, that's what I was thinking. But obviously there's a reason for it and that makes perfect sense. What have you got to tell us as, as it relates to the links with ICE? It's a little off topic, but it'd be great to, if you could share anything with our listeners that you can... Yeah, so it, it's an interesting thing with methamphetamine. ICE is just the crystal form of meth, and there's also a range of other forms. So the main other form would be powdered form. The crystal form is much stronger, much more potent than the powdered form. And what we've seen over the last 10 years is actually a reduction in the percentage of the population who use methamphetamine. But among those who do, there's been this switch from the low-grade powdered form to the more powerful crystal form. So if you use a, a more potent form of a drug, then you end up with more problems. So it's a bit like, like I think of it a bit like it, as an analogy, if you drink light beer versus straight vodka. So if you have a, a can of light beer, what that's 385 mils, you'd probably be, like most people would probably be fine, not very yeah. drunk. But if you drank 385 mils of straight vodka, most of us would be under the table. That's like 10 standard drinks or so. So that's the difference between speed and ice, I guess. And so if you use ice, you're much more likely to have problems associated with using methamphetamine. And one of the key problems is mental health symptoms. So we know that what happens in the brain is that methamphetamine releases a lot of dopamine and too much dopamine has been associated with psychosis type symptoms. So that's why you see a higher level of psychosis among people who use methamphetamine. And then the brain can't kind of cope with so much dopamine running around and eventually it kind of goes, oh, that's enough and shuts down all of the dopamine receptors. And so then you get this kind of flat period. So what you see with people who use just occasionally is they'll be really up and energetic and they'll have all the effects that they want of methamphetamine. And then when they stop using a couple of days later, they mood will be quite flat. And that's because the depletion in dopamine is associated with depression. So we get both of those, particularly um, anxiety and depression and psychosis at a much higher rate among methamphetamine users because of the chemistry of the drug. They didn't have an existing issue, but as a result of the ice use, it then puts them into a state of depression and anxiety as a result of the drug yeah. use. Yeah. Yeah. So even people who haven't had a pre-existing mental health issue can experience these increases in psychosis and increases in anxiety and depression but for people and usually if they stop using all of that will just go away because it's drug driven but for some people with schizophrenia for example they may have a vulnerability that's kind of waiting to be triggered and that use of methamphetamine may actually trigger an ongoing 
mental health disorder. And so they may, they may continue to experience psychosis symptoms in the form of schizophrenia forever. But the, by, by far the majority of people, it's just a temporary change in their brain chemistry that has created. Ice, I mean, it's becoming more and more available. I assume it's maybe becoming more affordable and quite a variety of, of different segments of the population are using this stuff. Is it getting worse? Do we know that? And, and is that a reason why? So I think this is a a bit of a nuanced distinction, but there's actually been been no change in availability of ice. There has been a drop in price of both speed and and ice and fewer people using, but the people who are using are using the more potent form. So what's happened is we've got this kind of paradoxical situation where there's a reduction in the number of people using methamphetamine, but an increase in harms. And it's really why we should be really focusing on harm reduction rather than trying to reduce use because use is already reducing. It's actually not having an impact on the harms that people are are experiencing or the communities experiencing. Mm. Yeah, it's, I find it really fascinating. I mean, you hear stories about this, these drugs and how addictive they can be and how much they can actually affect and impact not only the person taking it, but the people around them as well, you know, the family and carers, friends, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think when people are dependent on it and their symptoms are really severe, it can be difficult for, for them and for people who look after them or in their family or their friends. But what we see in the media is not necessarily the the whole picture. We think that probably 70% or more of people who use methamphetamine use only occasionally and don't really have any huge problems. And among the people who use regularly, we think probably about 10% of them will become dependent. So it's not not as highly addictive if you want to put it that way, as some other drugs, but the harms associated with it can be greater. So I think this is why we need to stop worrying about how many people are using and try to get use down and think about use, but really think about harms and the consequences of use. Just as a like an alternate example, there has been a huge increase in the number of people who use cocaine in Australia, and but there hasn't been very much in the way of increasing harms because of the way that people use it and the the frequency at which they use it. So yeah, that's um, interesting. if we just look, yeah, if we just looked at use, we'd be really, really worried about cocaine, but actually we should be more worried about the harms associated with methamphetamine and ice and address those harms. One of the really key big problems is that out of all our drug funding, about 66% goes to supply reduction and law enforcement and policing and only two percent goes to harm reduction activities so until the even though we've got three pillars of supply reduction harm reduction and demand reduction in our official drug policy the way that they're funded is very uneven and it means that we can't put the the resources and the effort into harm reduction that we actually need to to keep people safe and to keep the community safe. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? I think the other point that was interesting that you made was that 70% of people that use ice aren't actually displaying harmful behaviours which or, or aren't highly addicted to it. That's uh, 
that's incredible because I thought it would have been way less than that. I thought, it, in other words, I would have thought more people would have been highly addicted to it, but it just goes to show you. Yeah, and I, I think that really is a function of what you see in the media when most people get their information about illicit drugs, particularly from the media, because most people haven't tried an illicit drug. And if they have, it's usually cannabis, which is a, a fairly now cannabis is decriminalized and legalized in many jurisdictions around the world. Yeah. So most people haven't encountered someone who uses methamphetamine or cocaine or heroin. So the information and the understanding about those drugs that they get is entirely from the media and the media selling stories. So they focus on the kind of most interesting and the most severe cases to report. It's not, I guess it's not their job to report everything. So yeah. we get the impression that it's worse than it is. Yeah. Nicole, moving forward, what's the plan with you and work and what have you got coming up that is exciting for you? So we are, it's a good question for <laughs> this week because last week we just had a big strategic planning day. Oh, there you go. Um, thinking about, yeah, thinking about our future and we're looking at expanding our range of services. Mostly we work within the drug and alcohol field, but there's a, I think there's a lot of opportunity to support other sectors, mental health, primary care, justice, mm-hmm. child protection, because alcohol and drug use problems go across all of those sectors and they're often not well-trained or well-equipped to respond effectively. And so they get burnt out, the clients don't get the care that they really need. So we're really interested in expanding out from that. And also we have a, a program for workplaces, for the general public, for you know, just general workplaces. And we have been doing a lot more work around that. There's a lot more businesses now that are really interested in um, developing good drug and alcohol policy. So it's not just we sack everybody who you know we think is using drugs, but really have a, a much more compassionate approach to it, a much less stigmatised approach to it, and a much more functional approach because we don't want to really... It's expensive to recruit new people. Uh, So we've been working with some really big companies like BHP and those type of guys because they're really, really interested in a much healthier and safer workforce. Yeah, so the education, the awareness around that for their staff to make better choices and then support them in the instance that they need the help. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And it sounds like there's going to be some really good opportunities then for you moving forward. But ideally, hopefully, we can create these service or the systemic changes that can at least help create better client outcomes by working together more collaboratively moving forward. Nicole, do you just want to tell us how people can get in touch with you if they want to reach out and get some answer some questions or get some help? Yeah, absolutely. We're really open to shooting the breeze with anyone if they want to get in contact and have a chat. But the, and the easiest way is probably via our website, which is 360edge.com.au. And we're also on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. You can search us up there and have a conversation with us. Yeah, perfect. Is there any, is there any comments in closing that you want to make either on what we've spoken about or where you're going with all this? Um, I just think it's really... Like it's a really exciting time, I think, for particularly for the alcohol and drug space because people outside the alcohol and drug sector are much more interested in 
how to respond better to alcohol and drugs. The community's more interested in it. We've seen a real shift in attitudes to alcohol and drugs in the particularly illicit drugs in the National Drug Household Survey, which is conducted every three years. So Mm -hmm. now more people, for example, more people support pill testing than oppose it. The majority of people support decriminalisation of drugs. Probably the last 10 years has been a community shift. And I'm really interested in all the working at all the different touch points. So the clinical end, but also the workplace and the sectors. And I think if we, we can do that effectively, we can really make some inroads. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds like exciting times in that respect. And fingers crossed we get some changes happening with that. And I agree with you with all those comments. Nicole, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for sharing your journey and also what you've been up to. And all the best with your, your journey in 360 Edge. Thanks so much for having me on, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.